We do nothing but the best around here. That's all I'm saying. So uh, here we are, um, Joshua chapter uh, 9. Uh, I just finished reading. Um, somebody in our church was recommending this, and let me borrow the book. I just finished reading Me, Myself, and Bob. And uh, it's the story of the rise and fall of VeggieTales. And I don't know if you guys, uh, if you have little kids, you know what I'm talking about, especially back in the late 90s and early 2000s. Phil Vischer was the guy who founded VeggieTales and Big Idea Productions. And uh, it's a great read. Um, he, it's funny. If you liked VeggieTales as an adult and laughed, you'll like this book because the same guy. And he is absolutely hilarious. But uh, this company mushroomed from like three or four people to a company that was about 20 million, worth 20 million in value and over 300 employees, all within a short amount of time. It was crazy. It was back when you had the dot-com boom, and so there was all that, you know, big, hey, let's go crazy kind of thing. And uh, what ends up happening is they just explode with growth within two or three years and, and then just as quickly die. And it, it just does this big nosedive and, and crashes and wipes out. And... Uh, he ends up losing everything on it. And he writes in this book about the struggle of watching God watch the fall of VeggieTales from the sidelines and not do a thing. And he really struggled with why didn't God intervene? Why didn't God at some point stop this and save it? And it was a real crisis of faith for him. And what ends up happening is at the months afterwards, as he's processing everything, he, he hears from God, it's kind of this epiphany, uh, this one moment of clarity where God says, you know, you started off and we were together on this, but you stopped consulting me the longer this went. And this thing, you took it in directions I never asked you to take it. Never had designs. So by the time it was all big, and this, these are kind of his words, but the time when it was just so huge and everything, it, it really wasn't as much to do with God as much as it was to do with his vision and his plans. And that's why God stood on the sidelines and let it go, because it really wasn't a part of what God had in mind. God did a lot of great things through it, but this is just some of his reflections on it. You ever start on something, a project or a plan, relationship with prayer, and you're consulting God, and you're, you're living with that, the buzz of actually hearing from Him, and you know, man, this is God, and we know He's spoken, and we go, and then you get into the middle of it, and you stop talking to Him, and going to Him, and consulting Him, and because it's all so clear, and you think you're doing what God wants you to do, and then you end up somewhere on the back side of it going, oh my goodness, this is nothing like what I expected. And it's God's on the sideline and you realize, wow, where God is and where I am and how did we get here? And it turns out to be this big mess. And the story we're looking at today is very similar to the story of Phil Vischer. And in Joshua 9, it starts off with these verses summarizing 
the previous couple chapters where God has just destroyed through the Israelite army, has destroyed Jericho, has now destroyed Ai, and, and these nations are now kind of freaking out because the whole nation of Israel is exposed because they can just go right through the heart of it. And so, verse 1 of chapter 9, when all the kings west of the Jordan heard about these things, those in the hill country and the western foothills and along the entire coast of the Great Sea, which is the Mediterranean, as far as Lebanon, and there's the kings there, they mentioned the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, they came together to make war against Joshua and Israel. However, verse 3, when the people of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they resorted to a ruse. Now, if you don't know what's gone on with Joshua or Jericho and Ai, you can read the previous chapters, maybe, maybe afterwards. But they come and they resort to a ruse. They went as a delegation whose donkeys were loaded with worn-out sacks and old wineskins, cracked and mended. The men put worn and patched sandals on their feet and wore old clothes. All the bread of their food supply was dry and moldy. Then... They went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him, and the men of Israel, we've come from a distant land, make a, or a distant country, make a treaty with us. And we'll stop right there for a second. I know it's hard because it's a great story, but uh, stop right there. Here, there's a couple things that are going to happen here. One is God is going to put you in a place where you're going to want to cheer for the Gibeonites, which is interesting. And we'll talk more about that in a second, but he's putting us in a place where you, you want to cheer for them and you want them to, to get what they're going for here, and, and, and the story will play out that way. But it's important to know that these people from Gibeah, now uh, they call themselves the Hivites, um, you'll find that in verse 7, but the Gibeonites weren't this little tiny pushover nation. They actually had this, they were famous in that land. They all knew about the Gibeonite people. There was four cities, chapter 10, verses 1 and 2 talks about this. They had this royal city. They were part uh, of a consortium of nations that had banded together, and they were known for having really good fighting men. So it wasn't like they could just be pushed over, but they saw the only path to survival was actually a treaty. Because if they stood in the way of Israel, they knew it was going to happen. They were going to be destroyed. And so they figure out, well, how can we do this? And, and, and you start to see this because they know something. They know something about what's happening. And we find out later the author tips this out. But they know that God has told them to wipe every person out they encounter that's in the land. They know that. And that's why they're saying we've got to figure out a way to survive because we won't last in a fight. Their brains were sharper than their swords. I love that idea. And the question is, as you go through this, is will it work? So verses 7, it says this, the men of Israel said to the Hivites, that's, you know, their code name here, um, perhaps you live near us. How then can we make a treaty with you? Because the Israelites don't know these people at all. Verse 8, we're your servants, they said to Joshua. But Joshua said, who are you and where do you come from? And they answered, your servants have come from a very distant country because the fame of the Lord your God, for we had heard reports of him, all he that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, Sihon king of Heshbon and Og king of Bashan who reigned in Ashtaroth. And our elders and all those living in our country said to us, take provisions for your journey, go and meet them and say to them, we are your servants, make a treaty with us. 
This bread of ours was warm when you packed it at home on the day we left to come to you. That's a lie. But now see how dry and moldy it is. And these wineskins that we filled are, were new, but see how cracked they are? A lie. And our clothes and sandals are worn out by a very long journey? A lie. The men of Israel sampled their provisions, but did not inquire of the Lord. Let's read that phrase right there, that little, but did not, okay, we'll do this all out loud, but did not inquire of the Lord. Circle that verse. That is the pivotal phrase of the entire chapter. Then Joshua made a treaty of peace with them to let them live, and the leaders of the assembly ratified it by oath. What's interesting is they come to them, and Israel is immediately suspicious, the leaders and Joshua, and it all feels a little too convenient, kind of hinky. Like, all of a sudden, like, why are these people coming to us, like, from a distant country now when we're about ready to take over the land? It seems too convenient. And so they're suspicious, and rightfully so. But the Hivites, Gibeonites, laid it on thick. We're your servants. We're your servants. We're your servants. You're God. You're God. You're God. And and it went to flattery, and it felt good to hear that, like, we're your servants. And the Israelites are like, that's right. There's a new sheriff in town. I mean, it goes to that. There's something about this, a country coming to us, That's the first time this nation, who is famous for being slaves for 400 years, has now nations approaching them saying, can we be your servants? Don't underestimate the flattery of it. Right here at this point, they've got a decision to make. Their decision is make a treaty or not. Let these people live or wipe them out. And they didn't inquire of the Lord and, and the thing is, they had information from the Lord, and they knew that going in here. Here's the things that they did know out of the law. The law has, had actually spoken into this dilemma that they're facing. Up here on the screen, you'll see it. In Deuteronomy chapter, I think it's 20. Let me make sure this. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 20, in verses 10 through 18, there's two different sections here. So the first half of the section, this is addresses nations that are outside the land. When you march up to attack a city, make its people an offer of peace. If they accept and open their gates, all the people in it shall be subject to you, subject to forced labor and shall work for you. If they refuse to make peace and they engage you in battle, lay siege to that city. When the Lord your God delivers it into your hand, put to sword all the men in it. As for the women, the children, the livestock, and everything else in the city, you may take these as plunder for yourselves. And you may use the plunder the Lord your God gives you from your enemies." This is how you are to treat all the cities that are at a distance from you and do not belong to the nations nearby. So the law is very clear. Make treaties. You can make treaties with people who want peace outside the land. Verse 16 starts with people within the land. So however, in the cities of the nations, the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, do not leave alive anything that breathes. Completely destroy them, the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Otherwise, they will teach you to follow all the detestable things they do in worshiping their gods, and you will sit against the Lord your God. So it's very clear. The law is not gray on this. It's very clear. The problem is, 
it's not clear whether they live in the land or whether they live far away. Israel has no clue, and they can't figure it out. But the law's not silent on that. Because when Joshua, probably six months before this to a year at the max, when Joshua was commissioned, Moses was still alive and he was doing this in front of everybody, he gave him the mantle of leadership. Look at this passage here. There's instructions on what to do when things are gray. The Lord said to Moses, take Joshua, son of Nun, a man in whom is the spirit of leadership, and lay your hand on him. Have him stand before Eleazar, the priest, and the entire assembly, and commission him in their presence. Give him some of your authority so the whole Israelite community will obey him. He is to stand before Eleazar, the priest, who will obtain decisions for him by inquiring of the Urim before the Lord. As his command, at his command, he, being Aaron, and the entire community of the Israelites will go out, at his, and at his command, they will come in. So the Urim is this thing, for lack of a better word, it's like dice, okay? It's, I could explain it all, but just think of it like dice. So the high priest, these are good dice, not bad dice, all right? This is okay, this is not gambling, this is inquiring of the Lord, um, and, and God's instituted this for moments when they don't know what to do. Now, this is a moment where they don't know what to do. And God says, when you don't know what to do, inquire before the Lord. And so what they should have done is gone to the high priest and said, hey, can you get out the dice, the holy dice? We need to ask God some questions. And they would have said, Lord, do you want us to make this treaty? And God would have answered. Are these men lying to us? And they would have got the answer. But they did not inquire of the Lord. And what they said really is, yeah, we got this. They, they, they trusted their own sen senses. That self-confidence, like when you hold something, the bread... Looks legit, smell it, uh, right? You, you touch the fabric of the wineskins, you can see it. He, they trusted all their senses, and all their senses said, these guys are way far away. There's no way they live close to us. They said, yeah, 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 we got this, God. Phil Vischer did not inquire of the Lord, but trusted and was self-confident said, yeah, I got this now, God. You ever notice in our culture there's this little fad that's going through where people say, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like when you're talking and you don't get to finish a sentence and they, they just kind of clip in because they know what you're going to say. Go, yeah, 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 yeah. Or if they're really like anxious, yeah, 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 yeah. I got it. <laughs> Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Yeah, 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 I got it. Now, you'll watch. Just watch, and you'll go through this week, and you'll hear it all over the place. Because um, I've had people do it, and I, I'm not even done with my sentence. Uh, kids do it sometimes. Yeah, 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 I got it, Dad. I'm like, I didn't even finish it. Let me finish my sentence. But they think they got it, right? And how many times do we do that to God? Where we got it, God. Yeah, 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 we got it. I got it. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. I, I know what to do. Because I can smell it, and I can touch it, and I can see it, and I can hold it, and yeah, yeah, 
I can hear it. And God steps back. And he goes, okay. All right, thunder. Fire it up. So they make the deal. They make them the deal. They make the treaty. All the leaders do this. This isn't just Joshua. All the leaders do it, and they ratify it by an oath. Verse 16, three days after they made the treaty with the Gibeonites, the Israelites heard that they were neighbors living near them. Wah, wah, wah. 16 miles away. So the Israelites set out, and on the third day came to their cities, Gibeon, Kephira, Beeroth, and Kirithjerim. And the Israelites did not attack them because the leaders of the assembly had sworn an oath to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. There's a moment of tension right here where all the people in Gibeon are like, like okay, this is the moment of truth. This is like, are we going to live? Are they going to honor this oath that we made on a bed of lies? And on the other side, you got the people of Israel coming to go, all right. It's time to take out some more people. Let's conquer the land. And then the leaders go, yeah, we can't do that. And the leaders have this moment of going, I can't believe we've got to get up in front of our people and tell them we really messed up. Like, bad. And it says here in verse 18, the second half, the whole assembly grumbled against the leaders. A bunch of idiots. You know, in Exodus, the people grumbled, and God, like, opened up the earth and took them out. But interestingly enough, God doesn't open up the earth. He doesn't do anything. He lets the leaders suffer under their poor decision. And he's with the people going, yeah, you guys really messed this one up. You're on your own. And they had to tell him, we gave them an oath by the Lord, the God of Israel. Well, he didn't say that over in verse 15. This was like a serious oath. We cannot touch them now. This is what we will do to them. We will let them live so that the wrath will not fall on us for breaking the oath we swore to them. They continued, let them live. Let them be woodcutters and water carriers for the entire community. So the leader's promise to them was kept. It's a day of reckoning, and they tell the people, we gave our word. And when we give our word, God is in it. When you give your word to someone as a person of God, as a Christian, I don't know if you've ever thought of this, but God is in it. You may not even invoke his name, but if you give your word on something, he's in it. And these guys said, we gave our word, and God's in this. And the thing about God that we have to understand, when we start doing things and not inquiring of the Lord, but going out on our own, we bring God's name in, whether we like it or not. And they said, look, we can't do this because the nature of God is one who does not break promises. God is not a promise breaker. And so when we go out and we represent God and we make O's and people know we're Christians and then we break them, it reflects on God. It tarnishes his reputation because they go, oh, well, they're Christians. Guess that's what their God's like. 
It's sobering. In fact, it's permanent. You move through the Old Testament. They're 350 years later. This is like way past. These all people are dead, gone. 350 years later, King David is in the middle of a three-year famine, a famine, and he finally says, maybe I should inquire of the Lord what's going on <laughs> after three years. So he goes to God. He says, God, what's up? What gives? And God says, well, actually, now that you want to come and talk to me, I'll tell you. This famine is because King Saul was overzealous and killed a bunch of Gibeonites when he was trying to subdue the land. And you guys have a treaty. We all, uns, have a treaty with Gibeonites that we would never kill them in battle. And Saul did it. That's why the land is under judgment. And God says, go fix it. So King David goes over to Gibeon meets with the leaders and says, I just learned from the Lord that we did an unjust thing by killing your people during that war. How do we make this right to bring God's blessing back on the land? What is justice? And so the Gibeonite leader said, you kill seven of Saul's men from the line of Saul. You kill seven men and we will consider justice served. So David goes back gets seven men from Saul's line, kills them in front of the leaders of Gibeon. And the, the famine is over like that. 350 years later, our God is a God who keeps his promises. And when we give our word, and we're not inquiring of the Lord, it's dangerous. I hope, hopefully we understand how, appreciate the gravity of when we go in and we make vows. That's why God says, don't make vows. Just say yes, simple yes, simple no. You start making vows and it gets dangerous. And they told him. And it's interesting, there's a, there's a quote, because how many times have we made decisions and we go, oh, and we're living with the consequences and we never really brought God into it. He's on the sidelines and we spend night after night trying to figure out how to get out of it. And we think, well, if we do this or we do that, we start to rationalize more disobedience. James Montgomery Boyce says this. He says, disobedience is no solution to the bad consequences of an earlier disobedience. You ever dream, hope there's a way out? where you don't have to be reminded day in and day out of the bad plan, the bad decision. Disobedience is no solution to bad consequences of an earlier disobedience. So Joshua comes to them and says, why did you deceive us by saying, we live a long way from you while actually you live near us. You are now under a curse. You will never cease to serve as woodcutters and water carriers for the house of my God. And they answered Joshua, your servants were clearly told how the Lord your God had commanded the servant Moses to give you the whole, the whole land and to wipe out all its inhabitants from before you. So we feared for our lives because of you, and that is why we did this. We're now in your hands. Do whatever seems good and right to you. No longer are we your servants. Or he says that absolutely your servants, but you just see the humbleness there. We're in your hands. But it's interesting. They don't understand a lot about God, but the whole reason they did this is because they do believe in God. 
I was talking to somebody this past week who uh, has taken TTP and they made the observation after this class of going, man, when we first come to faith in God, we really don't understand much about God. And how much even sometimes uh, of people who come to faith in Christ come and, and we don't even understand God correctly. And yet God is merciful. And God says, that's enough. That's enough. That counts. I'll work with that. I mean, here's these people. They don't know anything about God except they're scared to death of him. And they know it's not really Israel as much as it is God. And God says, and God writes this story right here, and he, he puts us in the position of saying, I want you to cheer for him. I want you to cheer for him. Isn't this cool? The spark of faith. Because what ends up happening with this, where it was not led by God, but God redeems this decision. What ends up happening with them is, is a fascinating thing. If you start to read through the Old Testament, the Gibeonites are everywhere. And it's interesting, at first they were just to serve the whole community, and then Joshua says, no, actually you're going to serve before the Lord. They're the water carriers, and they're the firewood people for the altar. So day in and day out, guess who is next to the altar? The Gibeonites. Day in and day out, guess who's next to the priesthood? The Gibeonites. You don't think that bled into their homes? You read through the rest of the Old Testament not once, despite all the civil wars, despite nations that came against Israel, not once did the Gibeonites ever betray Israel. Never. They became one with Israel. They stayed loyal to God. You start reading on, you find out that the tabernacle was set up by David in Gibeon. Solomon had his vision from God in Gibeon, the capital city of these people. David, one of his famous 30 fighters, the mighty men of David, one of them was from Gibeon, a Gibeonite. If you read, Israel got destroyed by Babylon, was deported, all these people taken away, and then they had the chance to return. There was a lot of Israelites that actually didn't return, but had found Babylon to become their home, and so they stayed but if you read in Ezra and Nehemiah, the Gibeonites all came back. And then you read further and you find out it's the Gibeonites that are actually rebuilding the wall. And the Gibeonites that are there to the end. And God weaves them in and they become part of the family of God. And they're in front of the altar day and night learning about their God. And so I, I say that and I think God puts that in here, this there's this redemption that even though we may make decisions that don't inquire of God and do things and we end up and go, oh no, how am I gonna, what am I gonna? The consequences just keep rolling on because some decisions last our whole lives, the consequences. God says, look, I can redeem things. The consequences may roll on, but I can still redeem things. Don't ever underestimate that. I can redeem even the worst things. Just come talk to me. And so what does it look like, real quick, what does it look like to inquire of the Lord? 
And some of you may be going, well, Scott, then how do I do that? Because I don't have the holy dice unless you got some, and I don't have holy dice. I um, uh, wish I did sometimes. But uh, here's the thing. How do we consult God on things? Uh, number one, you press the easy button right here. Look here first. If it says it in here, you don't have to go and pray. He's already spoken. He's already come and talked to you. It's right in here. And if it says it in here, I wouldn't do it. Not gonna do it, right? Stay away from anything. I mean, it's just very clear. If it's in here, don't do it. Now, if it's not in here, which if you read, there's passages that talk about the gray areas and how are we to live in the gray areas and where to seek the Lord. The second thing I would do if you want to consult God is to pray. Pray. And, and not just pray, Lord, give this to me. I want this. I want this. I want this. But to come to God and say, God, can you give me? Literally ask him, Lord, I want your thoughts on this. What do you think about this decision? What's your wisdom? What's the knowledge you could give me? What's the discernment I need for, to make this decision? And God will give it to you. He will. And that could be from buying a house to buying a car to should I marry this person or not? And God will show you. He will. I think that's the, the other piece of it is God will speak. If we come to him, he will speak. I was this past year meeting with some people and, and we were just praying. I said, okay, now God's just going to come and he's going to talk right now and he may give you a Bible verse and he may give you a, a word in your mind or a picture of somebody else here, but we're going we're gonna to hear this thing. And God came, and it was amazing what happened those few moments. And it got done, and the person said, I've never experienced this. Like, God actually, like going to him and expecting him to talk to you right then. And I go, well, that's the Christian life. And if you've never experienced that, it can happen. God does that, and he wants to talk to us. So when you come to pray, stop talking at some point. And stop saying, yeah, 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 and say, okay, talk to me, God. Third thing, don't be in a rush. These guys spent, what, maybe a morning making the decision, as far as we know, that lasted at least 600 years. I think they could afford it a little bit more time. What if they said, let's just think about this? We've got no rush. I wonder if by the next day they slept on it and they came back and went, hmm, we need to ask God. Our elders, we meet, and uh, we meet every week, or not every week, but three times a month, and it is so interesting to me that when we have major decisions that are coming our way, when we sleep on them, they end up morphing and changing, and we get more depth and we get more angles and facets to a decision, and we come back the next week and we go, guys, we didn't think of this, and we didn't think of this, and that's the Lord. We're inquiring of the Lord. And it always, always is amazing to me how God leads us and protects us. But when we're in a rush, and it's typically because I'm in a rush, because we got Scott's plan for our lives, that's when we go bad. You ever make a great decision when you're urgent, I think we create false urgency. We think we got to do this. We got to do it now. And God's like, look, I'm older than dirt. You'll be fine. You really will. If you're going to bring my name into it, this decision's going to last. Slow down. 
Final thing, do it with others. You want to consult God and you want to hear from God, do it with the body. All these leaders, you, you look at this story, all these leaders are together and, and there's something about doing it together. And then they stand shoulder to shoulder together. Inquire of the Lord, ask people, actually stop and say, look, I want some prayer over this. Would you help me? Pray for this. Let's find out what God's saying about this. Let me pray. Lord, I pray.